Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. I'm so happy to see you. Thank you again for your time adjustments, your flexibility. Um, and it's good that on my way, uh, on my way preparing for a funeral, we could talk about humor a little bit. Um, because that is the ups and downs. Although it does say, it does say in Ecclesiastes and Kohelet that we should always choose to be in the house of mourning over the house of feasting, um, to sit with those who are in mourning instead of those who are in joyous times. So um, <clears throat> we'll keep that in mind today. So let's start with a little poll here. A little poll is humor of value, jokes versus seriousness. How important is humor? <laughs> it's kind of a funny question itself. How important is humor? <laughs> As if it's rated by its importance. Number one, laughing in life is a top value. Number two, seriousness about our life mission is a top priority. Or number three, there's a time and place for both. Okay, let's give you, okay, 20% laughing in life is a top value. 80%, there's a time and place for both. Of course, it's easy to choose the third one because it feels like, why wouldn't you choose that for everything? There's a time and place for everything, right? But how important is laughing? Okay, very good. So we are going to unpack this a little bit together. And this is very fitting because we are in the month of Adar, the month of, uh, a month of Simcha, uh, actually two Adars again this year um, because of, um, you know, fixing the calendar. But uh, so we are in the leading up to Purim and I want to make a little pitch to join our Purim festivities this year here at VBM in person outside of our office. It's unclear what that will look like exactly yet, but we know it will involve Megillah and food and chesed opportunities uh, to support the homeless and all kinds of other great things. So um, we hope you'll join us. So friends, on the one hand, we have a very heavy mission to take seriously. I've been thinking about this, having two friends who just died over the last two weeks, two local friends. Um, who died too, died too young. It's easy to reflect on our frailty and on our mortality and on the seriousness of what we need to achieve in our life. It's very easy to be pulled in that existential direction of, uh, of focus to achieve our mission. 
we can't mess around. We got one life. We got to focus. On the other hand, life is to be enjoyed and be enjoyable. And laughing is not only a means to that end, but is also just healthy and normal and makes life worth living. Does our tradition prioritize humor or seriousness? So in the Talmud, the rabbis taught that humor is valuable in Torah study as it warms people's hearts and brings joy into their learning. For example, before starting to lecture or teach, Rabbah, the Talmudic sage, would always tell a joke. The rabbis would laugh. Then he would sit down in a state of awe and would begin the day's lesson. Religious education and humor go nicely together. So why is that? Why do you think Rabbah would do that? Feel free to unmute yourself. Why would Rabbah say, as a religious imperative, I should tell a joke before we study Talmud? Anyone want to take a stab? Feel free to unmute yourself. It, it releases tension. Okay, good. Everyone might be a little bit nervous, right? Maybe they have awe for this teacher. Maybe they're nervous about being called on or getting it wrong, right? And yeah, for some that might seem strange, this idea of like a, but if you remember the strict disciplinary approach to education, right? That you're a little scared in class. You know, you, you might get the ruler to the hand. Remember the ruler to the hand? <laughs> um, you might, uh, you know, or worse. I don't know what they used to do in the olden days. So um, good. So Lauren says um, it releases some tension. Anyone else? Else uh, I, I think it's important that um, while you take your studies seriously, you don't take yourself too seriously. And I think this is a way of stating that. Great. So Michael says this is about humility, that yes, our content in our learning is serious, but I don't tell, take myself so seriously. I, 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 I remember that it's not all about me. And so that joke kind of um, helps me to loosen my, myself. Um, kind of come out of myself a little bit. Great, that's great. Anyone else? Steve? Um, all I can think of is that I should always take myself seriously and uh, would doubt the achievement of whatever goals I'm trying to reach if I didn't take myself seriously. That doesn't mean I, I can't be humble at the same time. Mm. Great, awesome, awesome. Good, so Steve makes our third contribution here, uh, which is awesome. Uh, another case I think of recently is, well, not so recently, when my, when my daughter who just turned nine on Friday was about two and we took her to the ER for some stomach stuff, um, the doctor um, wanted, to do, um, wanted to do ding dong on her belly button. Um, and so like to this day in our house, we call him Dr. Ding Dong. And so, Dr. Ding Dong wanted to hit her belly button. And so why did he do that? Like he needed to touch her to examine her and she was a little afraid of that. So by like making that first touch a little bit playful, it kind of enabled her to be a little bit more trusting. So too, like a little bit of humor can connect us. It can give us intimacy. In fact, psychologists say, I'm going totally off, 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 off topic right now, I know, but, but, it's, but it really is on topic. Psychologists say that laughing is not biological. I mean, in some rare cases, laughing is biological. It's, it's physiological, but really it is social, right? We choose to laugh um, as a statement of what's happening. And we choose to not laugh as a, as a statement. Yeah, sometimes something's so funny, we just can't, we can't hold it back. But most of the time, laughing is a way of, of connecting, of sharing approval. Of, and so 
a joke kind of builds community. It brings us together. When Dr. Ding Dong is more connected to my daughter because they've laughed together now. Okay, yes, uh, yes, Matthew. It breaks down walls. Great. If you think of walking your into a lecture hall yeah. with 200 students in an amphitheater and the professor down at the bottom, there is a wall there like in theater. How do you break the, the fourth wall of theater? It's a way to break down and create a better community. And it's the mean, the mean that we're always looking for. Great, great, great. Yes, breaking down walls. Um, I think that's really great. And um, enables us to connect and be in that community together. Julia, did I see you were gonna jump in? Oh yeah, I was gonna say it makes it a, a joyful experience for the teacher makes it a joyful experience for the students. They're more likely to wanna come back and continue learning. Oh, awesome, great. Yeah, that learning should be fun. Like learning doesn't have to be like, like you just like exercise. Like for some people exercise, like, oh, I gotta go exercise, this is horrible. My doctor said, I gotta do it. For others, they find a sport or something they enjoy and they, and they wanna do it. So to learning, Learning can sound like school, like why would I want to go to school if I could just turn on a movie, you know? But learning can be and should be enjoyable, right? And, and to go to Julia's second part of that point, that it's also a pedagogical strategy, that if we want them to come back, in those days, you had no choice. You had to go to school, Jewish school, right? But today, the kid can opt out. The kid can opt out, in fact, most of them do uh, at, at some point. And so if you can't convince your kid to go to Sunday school or, or whatever Jewish program they're gonna go to, like. It's gonna make it more difficult for everyone. So it makes it more likely they're gonna to want to be there. You know, let me offer one more, then we'll go on, unless I'm missing someone's hand, um, which is that I think that laughter, we think of it just as self-indulgent. It's like being in an experience, but that's of course a wrong interpretation of laughter. I think laughter rather than a contraction inwards is an expansion outwards. Laughter it, um, can foster moral and spiritual imagination. Right? It enters a space of creativity, a space, an experiential space of expansiveness, right? which is, I think, part of what makes it joyful. If you're having a bad day and something makes you laugh, you zoom out of your narrowness of your bad day. You, you kind of can exist in a wider plane of experience. And that's why um, having a relationship that brings you joy can be so great after, after a hard day or, or something that, that makes us laugh. So a number of ideas what Rabba is doing, and I would help us think about everything we do. This is not just about Talmud. Anything that we are engaging someone in that is serious, how do we appropriately bring humor in? Now, let me tell you my least favorite place that humor is brought in, and you'll tell me your least favorite place. I hate when moyles tell jokes. Jokes. The moyles about to do bris mila, about to circumcise. And the moyles got so many jokes. Like, who needs jokes at a mila? You know, I, maybe some people like it. I just find all the circumcision jokes to be, uh, you know, in relatively bad taste. Um, but maybe you, anyone else want to share a place where you, you find uh, uh, humor to be consistently misused? Shmuley. Yes. Um, uh, Stan's father was the um, Toastmaster at the Hebra Kadisha Society. Mm -hmm. And he, every year he would uh, be speak at their dinner. And of course he was full, uh, full of jokes. I mean, there was a, so there's a, you know, there's a balance, there's a balance. And the other thing that also about laughter is that 
Um, a lot of times at bridal showers, they um, ask to for the uh, people, the guests, to give advice to the to the bride, and oh, yes. uh, for you know for good for good marriage. And laughing is always laughter is always one of the top things that you have to laugh. You know, there's there's a place for laughter in in. Every aspect of life, you know, Great. I'm sure I'd like to hear some Moyle jokes. So uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. Anyway, you know, in the olden days, in the olden days, rabbis actually knew what they were doing. Rabbis were trained to do everything. They were like a sofer who could write a Torah. They were Moyle, they were, they were Mohalim who could perform circumcisions. They were Shochtim who could, who could shecht an animal. They, they, they knew how to do everything today. Like, you know, it's a professional trade school. So very few skills rabbis come out with, you know, but yes, but Moyles could use a, in my view, could use a, a little joke 101 training. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I know some people don't mind it. Some people, some people mind it. But friends, I have something to offer you today. You didn't know what you were signing up for today. What I have to offer you today is your ticket to heaven. You want your ticket to heaven? I got it for you. I got it for you here today. I got your, your golden ticket to Olam Haba. Okay, here it is, ready? One Talmudic passage tells us how we have an automatic ticket to heaven. You might've thought you had to work hard and be a good person. You might've thought you had to be charitable and kind and nice to go to heaven. Oh, I got another pathway for you, ready? Here we go, Ta'anits, let's go, let's see it. It says here in the Talmud, these two are destined for the world to come. Rav Brokia went up to him and said, what did you do? How come you get to go to heaven? Are, are you a mechanic who like gave away free car parts? What did you do? They said to him, we are comedians and we go to cheer up those who are depressed. Additionally, whenever we see two people involved in a quarrel, we strive hard to make peace between them. So what do the rabbis say? They say, you want an easy ticket to heaven? Be a comic, make people laugh, right? I, I'm not aware of any other Talmudic passage like this. Maybe there's something I've missed. Because normally it's like, oh, you know, you got to do all these mitzvot, you got to do all these good things, you got to be a wonderful person. And, and of course, we do want to pursue that path. But they offer another pathway. Comedians, people who can make others laugh and help to relieve their suffering through that have an automatic ticket to heaven, right? The, 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 the second one looks a little harder. Two people involved in a quarrel, if you bring peace between them. So in any ways, friends, here what we learn is Making people laugh is a religious enterprise. It is an enterprise of helping another feel connected, breaking down walls, reducing suffering, to relieve some tension within someone on a, an emotional and physiological level. So it's something to think about. So if that was the case, when we teach our children about matzah and we teach them about, uh, about uh, fasting and we teach them about Israel and the Holocaust, shouldn't we also teach them to be comics? Maybe in our maybe in our Sunday school we should have a little joke training session so kids learn how to how to how to how to bring joy to others a little bit something to think about. Okay, friends, humor also presents a challenge to the educator as it can serve as a distraction and lead to frivolity. The rabbis were sensitive to this too. You probably didn't know that Jackie Mason was a pulpit rabbi before rising to fame as a comedian an Orthodox pulpit rabbi, no, no less. It was his humor and jokes in his sermons that drew people into shul. And it was at that point that he realized he may have a future in comedy. <laughs> so that was interesting, you know, that, um, that, uh, that the pulpit rabbi experience taught him that. Uh, usually, 
rabbis, like like fathers. Fathers are the quintessential bad joke makers. I'm sure it's not true of the other men here, but I'm already my, my children are already at the age where it's like, oh come on, dad. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, but the old joke about dads, you don't know how to tell jokes, uh, which is not true of any of you, only of me. Um, and I guess of rabbis who who don't tell great jokes also. But you know, Jews Jews study humor. We study humor because it's so interesting the percentage of American stand-up comedians that are Jews and the, the, the number of joke writers like in Hollywood and, 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 comedy, and comedy shows that were Jews. And of course, that's a complicated history. And so we study this, this history of Jewish humor to understand where it emerged from. One genre is feeding into anti-Semitic tropes, right? A lot of Jewish humor is feeding into anti-Semitic tropes. I don't know why we do that. I mean, I have some ideas, but I don't know why for sure. You know, like we, we make like Jews and money jokes, Jews and Jews being stingy, you know, like why would, why would we make, we make these kind of jokes? I mean, there, there's, there, uh, obviously there's some reasons. The other kind of joke we make is about, um, uh, uh, some people make dark jokes, you know, to kind of make it lighter. I mean, there's Holocaust jokes. I, I, I'm not into Holocaust jokes. Maybe uh, some folks who are su survivors or second generation uh, may, maybe are, are, are into that in ways I can't relate to. I, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not so engaged. But Jewish humor itself is something we study. Tolushkin, Rabbi Tolushkin has a whole book on Jewish humor, as do others, analyzing some of these, some of these trends. Anyway, while of course striking the right balance is necessary between serious and humor, and it's a challenge to be sure, one episode in the Talmud shares how one rabbi tried to conquer his delight in humor. It says here in the Darim, on the day that Rabbi laughed, Punishment would come upon the world. What? So he said to Bar Kapara, who was a humorist, do not make me laugh and I will give you 40 measures of wheat. He replied, but let the master see that I may take whatever measure I desire. So he took a large basket, pitched it over, placed it on his head, went to Rabbi and says to him, fill me the 40 measures of wheat, which I may demand from you. Thereupon Rabbi burst into laughter and said to him, did I not warn you not to jest? He replied, I wish, but to take the wheat which I may justly demand. So it's hard to understand exactly what's going on here. Um, but Rabbi, um, Rabbi uh, seems to have some understanding of, of asceticism that life is not ultimately um, about, about pleasure. It's not about pleasure. And uh, joking represents uh, some kind of frivolity, which is a distraction. And Bar Kapara, has a very different different approach. Uh, by the way, you know who you really should make laugh? People post-surgery. Uh, <laughs> I know you know that, but sometimes post-surgery you wanna, if, they, if it's an abdominal area surgery, uh, is what I'm referring to, of course, um, where um, uh, we wanna relieve tension for people, but actually it causes pain to laugh. Um, uh, but in any case, here we see another tension. We see another tension here about striking the right balance. So societies from pagan times to the present, have designated certain occasions or days when the usual, usual societal discipline was relaxed or completely done away with. Think of ancient spring festivals and present day Mardi Gras in New Orleans or Carnival in Europe. For us, Purim is a time when we may drink wine and the usual discipline is often thrown off. The custom of the Purim spiel, where we tell jokes and put on plays, the whimsical play put on the yeshiva students and community members is the most prominent example of this practice. By the way, how old do you think this custom is? Only about 500 years old. 
and it is taken directly from Italy. The Jews were influenced by Carnival, right? It ought to be obvious that Jews are influenced by our surrounding societies. Even some of our most cherished ideas are ones that are interwoven with Gentile society's ideas. Few ideas are, are totally pure in their origin within um, Judaic origins. But this is an obvious case where costume wearing and plays and joke telling, as we know today to be so common in shuls, emerges from Italian Jewry in relationship to Carnival. By the way, I once had a really bad Carnival experience where I, went, I was in Venice and I didn't know it was Carnival. And so I got off the train, I was like 20 years old, and I said to, I said to uh, two friends, I'm going to shul, it's gonna be Shabbos, I'm going to shul, and I'll meet you in the afternoon. And so I went to, I went to shul and I went to meet in the afternoon, and I didn't know Carnival was coming. And so we, we said we'd meet in San Marcos Square, and it turns out San Marcos Square was filled with like 20,000 people and everyone had masks on. And then I went to book a hotel room and there were no hotel rooms left and it was pouring rain. And I remember just sitting crying. I was sitting and crying in Venice as a 20 year old. I couldn't find my friends. There was no hotel room to stay in. It was pouring rain and I didn't know what to do. And I was walking all mopey with this big backpack on my back. So I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Like I, I, everyone's on drugs around me. I, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to sleep. I'm pouring rain. Like I want, I want my parents. I want my parents. And all of a sudden, a rabbi walks over to me. He goes, you look Jewish. I said, I do. Nobody's ever told me that. I'm tall and light hair, you know, <laughs> you know to feed into those stereotypes. I, he goes, you look Jewish. Come with me. I said, really? I was wearing a baseball hat. I didn't, I didn't you know. And uh, I said, okay. And he, and he brought me in and he gave me a, a meal. He said, we have no more housing, but you can sleep next to the mikvah. And so I slept in the mikvah that night on a little cold mattress next to the mikvah. And that man changed my life. That man changed my life. He helped me to think about what it means to, I, to want to be the kind of rabbi who goes out in the rain and brings people in. You know, whether they look Jewish or not, of course, or, or whatever religion they are or orientation, right? But, but he really changed my life, this rabbi in Venice. And, uh, and anyways, so that was my experience with Carnival. Not, not a great one, but ended up, ended up being great. So friends, the, the history of the Purim spiel merits a little bit more examination. In the 15th century, Ashkenazi families created humorous plays based on parody rhymes of the Book of Esther. Eventually, these grew into public performances, often a body nature. By the following century, it was customary for Purim spiels to be staged performances in the home and wealthy families brought in performing companies to stage elaborate productions. By the 18th century, the spiel branched out to include other biblical episodes and grew to include musical instruments and longer narratives. At times, the content was deemed offensive to the extent, for example, the leaders of the Jewish community in Hamburg banned all Purim spiels in 1728. You might've thought your rabbi was too serious. These were anti-comedy rabbis. They banned the Purim spiel in Hamburg, right? Hamburg, it doesn't, doesn't ring like a city that, that is uh, full of joy. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm sure Hamburg is great. Um, but in 1728, the rabbis banned the spiel. This wasn't like banning Spinoza. This was like banning happiness. Today, the Purim spiel varies from community to community. It tends to be lighthearted, festive, and replete with silly costumes and play acting. Fortunately, the humor that is on display in Purim spiels and other religious contexts is not only therapeutic, but it can help us to learn as well. 
in many yeshivot and midrashot, the Purim spiel includes satirizing faculty members. Think about this. The, 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 there's a notion of kavod harav, of honoring one's teacher. And yet on the Purim spiel, you mock the teacher. You mock the teacher, which when done in good taste can serve as a catalyst for students and faculty developing a stronger relationship. Um, and I, I remember finding it so awkward doing this uh, and, and feeling the rabbi in some way didn't like it, in some way was laughing uh, doing this in, in, when I lived in Israel, um, but it really being in a very interesting cultural experience. On the other hand, Rabbi Avadia Yosef of blessed memory expresses his concerns on this subject in a responsive. Um, uh, yeah, he, he always looked serious. By that point in this picture, he's already blind, uh, even though he had the Talmud memorized and continued to quote the Talmud back and forth even while he was blind. Uh, he, was the, he was the biggest Eloi of his generation, the Talmudic master of his generation, Sephardic, Sephardic rabbi emerging out of Egypt. And he says here, he writes here, I have seen in writing that the Gaon Rabbi Shimon Sofer died from the anguish he suffered in the wake of the insults hurled at him by, by, the, by, the, by the Rav on Purim. May the good Lord atone for this. God forbid then that this custom should continue and especially not in the Holy Yeshivot, which must serve as an example of love, honor, and awe of Torah. It is a mitzvah to forcefully object and absolutely abolish this evil custom, the word minhag being a transmutation of the word Gehenna, right? Okay, so very, very, uh, very interesting, strong approach against this. We might think of humor of self-deprecation and its value, but what about humor where you are mocking another, even when that's kind of the enterprise you're engaging upon together? How can that bring shame to another? So friends, of course, leitzanut, frivolity, mockery, Lashon hara, hurtful speech, and insensitivity are not the goals in our humor, nor are they acceptable outcomes of humor in religious life or in education. I recall Purim spiels that went overboard in roasting educators at a certain yeshiva I studied at. Clearly, some of those rabbis felt hurt by what students considered to be holiday jokes. Some who witnessed this banned Purim spiels. Studies over the past 15 years, however, have yielded interesting data on the positive role of humor in learning <clears throat> from the APA here. Number one, students in a statistics course retained more knowledge when the lectures in included humorous material that related to the course material. <clears throat> Number two, students were more likely to log into an introductory psychology course when they had a professor who made self-deprecating jokes and included cartoons and other topical matter material in the lectures. So that goes to Julia's point, more likely to attend. Number three, a 1999 study demonstrated that students perceived instructors who injected humor into the classroom as being more intelligent and concerned with students than instructors who, do, instructors who did not. So that, 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 data, that, that piece of data gives us two, two interesting insights. Number one, um, <clears throat> that we actually view people who can tell jokes well to be more intelligent. We might think that we that might be counterintuitive for some. We might think that joke telling is kind of a low form of intelligence, but um, statistically, we see that it's not, empirically that's not the case. Actually, we view people to be more intelligent if they're capable of humor. And then the second bit there is that joke telling um, is deemed to be some degree uh, of a capacity of empathy that I care enough about you 
that I uh, am bringing my A game. I'm bringing my humor. I'm bringing something to you. It's almost a gift. <clears throat> I'm giving you the gift of laughter. Lastly, laughter, which reduces stress hormones, such as cortisol, can even be used to lighten the atmosphere in a classroom during a test and can improve students' performances on those tests. By reducing stress, um, by reducing stress, students are able to focus and perform better. Very interesting. Very interesting thing. By the way, I, I once heard a rabbi say, and you'll tell me if you think this is true or not, um, that you can give the same sermon, you can give the same sermon a month later because uh, people will have forgotten it. But a story, you need to wait a, uh, a year to tell the story again. And a joke, you need to wait many years. <laughs> that, that a moral teaching or a, a religious lesson will be forgotten quickly in its content. A story less so and a joke the least so. And so um, it's interesting kind of what it actually is remembered. Sometimes I remember telling a sermon and, and telling a little joke in passing. And then at Kiddush, everyone wants to talk and everyone wants to talk about the joke. I went at the joke. The joke wasn't the message here. The joke was just, a, I was trying to lighten the mood a little bit. Here's what I was trying to get across. Fire and brimstone about, about, about what we can do in the world. So it's interesting uh, also how memory works and what memory can retain. Uh, anyways, friends, um, this is going to be a short presentation. I'm just towards the conclusion here because I want to talk. While concerned educators will rightly point out that humor should not take over in a class setting because students will consider everything to be a joke and there will be little learning, these studies show that humor is nevertheless helpful in many situations. Many jokes enter a gray area, however. While the joke may appear innocent and playful, it can leave a lasting scar on another. We must be so careful with our behavior and words and tremble with Yirat Shemayim, awe of heaven. Yet at the same time, we should strive to be humble and not take ourselves so seriously that we cannot laugh and play a little bit. After all, as we mentioned earlier, such gentle behavior can bring joy and healing to others. Rev. Avraham Yitzchak HaKohen Cook taught that joy does not involve evading evil and the challenges of life, for this would not be true joy. It would simply be masking the reality of the world in which we are living. Rather, there must be a constant desire to integrate life and join with a greater spiritual force. And this can arouse true joy. In this vein, humor can be used to bring in new life perspectives and elevate one emotionally in turn creating the potential for new spiritual heights. So friends, may we succeed in infusing humor and joy into our lives and may it be the type of joy that elevates us and those around us towards our higher purpose. Okay, friends, I, I want to open up our conversation here together. Yes, hi, Lauren. Hi, um, yes, you're totally right that you never forget a joke. I remember being in a shul in England sometime in the mid-90s. The rabbi told a joke and I thought it was hilarious. Unfortunately, he was a North American and uh, like the few North Americans sitting there got it. None of the Brits got it at all. But it was it was great. And I still tell it. Yeah. The other thing is like, just as an example, like I had to give what could have been a very, very dry lecture on uh, medications that cause falls and the mechanisms thereof. So what I did was I looked for funny animal pictures. Like if it caused dizziness, it was a cat lying on his back. If it, if it uh, 
affects your vision. I found one of a dog with his pawn on top of another dog. And you know what? People enjoyed it and they really remembered it because they associated it with those animal pictures. So I think humor is important. Humor is important. And the other thing is to have no sense of humor in your life is very sad. My, my dad had none and I understand, but you know, he had a very good friend who went through the same thing, also went to the Shoah, but he had a sense of humor and life was so much easier for him. So um, yes, we have to know when to laugh and when to cry, but man, humor is like really important. Yeah, thank you. And I, I, I would love to read some studies that would show the correlation between life expectancy and the ability to laugh, because I, I suspect there's got to be some correlation there um, in, you know, um, in regards to in regards to health. Um, actually, there was one I read. I, there, there was a study I read recently from an ASU uh, um, from, 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 from an ASU uh, uh, scientist over there. Uh, which which is worth worth looking at, but you know sometimes we don't take it seriously. But we we say, does God have a sense of humor? God must have a sense of humor, right? Because look look at what happened to me, God. But like theologians don't take that seriously. But I think the question of does 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 humor have value to the human enterprise ought to also reflect. If it does, then presumably it does to God as well, right? if it is something that is fundamentally good, not just instrumentally good, but it is so hard for us to spiritually imagine a God who loves humor um, because um, we think of God as a healer, God as a helper, God as a spiritual presence, but God as a joke teller, God as a fellow comedian fe feels like almost a mockery, but it's worth thinking about. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, um, my dad will be 96 in July. And uh, he's known uh, throughout our family for the one-liners that he's been telling for probably 90 of those years. So, I mean, uh, you know, my kids quote him. I think even the grandchildren, some of the grandchildren that have seen him recently, you know, quote him on his one-liners because he tends, I mean, he's always repeated the jokes, but now at 96, so they're, they're I'm gonna tell him that I heard that today, that there might be something to life expectancy and joke telling. <laughs> you know, it's also um, when you're no, I, I'm not I'm not supposing proposing your father does this, but it, it is easier when you're in your elder years to get away with um, offensive jokes because um, everyone's like, oh, it's generational, you know, it's <laughs> it's generational, you know, they can say that. So I don't know if that's the case in your. your well, they haven't years. changed in all these years. So oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. You know, and so um, but. Humor is, I mean, we, we rarely, there, there's a good reason we rarely see politicians make jokes, you know, um, because, you know, jokes are, 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 are really a landmine. They're really a landmine if you're in a position of authority. And, and I'll share, in, in a way that was sad, in some ways sad, but in some ways inspiring to me, one of my most influential teachers, Rabbi Avi Weiss, told me that he, he removed jokes from his teaching. The only jokes he will use are self-deprecating because he once told a joke about a congregant from, from the Bema, from, you know, on the, at the pulpit, um, uh, that he thought was very lighthearted, that the community would like and that it was fine for him. And the guy was so scarred by it, by like the community laughing, what he felt was laughing at him in a way that was most certainly not intended, that he said, I'll, I'll, I'll never do it. So he only tells self-deprecating jokes and uh, and so it's worth it's worth thinking about like how you know how our jokes um, change as we get older, 
and what our jokes are about and why they're why they're funny. But anyway, Cheryl, thank you for that. And and hopefully I'll get to hear some of his one-liners one day. <laughs> and thank you for that. Man plans, God laughs. Yeah, I think that's a great example of, of a quote that we use that we don't take seriously. I think we sort of think it's a funny thing to say, like man, or, or like man plans, God laughs. Like it's an insight that like, what do we know? Like we can't plan our lives. God knows the big picture, but we don't think God is actually laughing. But what if God is laughing? Steve, were you going to jump in there? Ruled with, uh, with laughter and applause. That was a great line. Um, but I, I could say, and, and this might not be related, um, and, and I don't mean to be a thorn in anybody's side. I can't stand self-deprecating humor. Oh. You can be funny and say really clever, nice, uplifting things, but self-deprecating is so dismissive of, I want someone to be serious about themselves. And I know I'm coming across too seriously with serious today. Um, but I, I just, I loved Muhammad Ali because he was funny and he was artistic and he was a great fighter. But there were other fighters that I didn't like because they were arrogant beasts. Muhammad Ali was, was to me a, a blessing to the world. And, and recently, and, and, and this is something most people probably have missed, Terry Bradshaw, the former quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, always came across to me as a self-deprecating fool. And then he came, there's an HBO documentary on him now. And we learn why, that he has had lifelong deep depression and he's had ADHD and he explained it all in the documentary. And it makes me feel so much more receptive to him as honesty, as opposed to trying to be uh, the best fool on, on the, the pregame shows. So, that's great, that's Steve. You know, that, that's a great reminder that, um, or a great challenge to the idea of self-deprecating humor being the highest level of humor, um, that actually there's a counter argument to that. And I think you make, a, you make a great point in regards to what it can do to one's self-esteem, the kind of culture it creates. And your Muhammad Ali example is great too, about how someone doesn't take themselves so seriously and they're willing to, to offer that. So Steve, yeah, very, very insightful. Thank you. Who else wants yeah. to jump in here? What's an example of uh, what's an example of how um, of how humor has shaped your life, or someone who you think did it really well? Steve just shared one um, in a way that was expansive for you or refining for you. You know, you know, I think that it's it's important as a child to hear your parents laugh. Um, that it is um, the world is scary, and I remember falling asleep and there being like dinner parties in the house. I mean. The, party, the dinner parties were pretty lame, <laughs> but, but there would be laughing. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. My parents can laugh, right? It, it, it tells a child that the world is okay a little bit when there's some laughing, you know? So Eddie, did I see you jumping in? I think uh, uh, humor and laughter is also a trauma response and can be used as, as a self-healing. Um, but I also see it as being used as, um, like when you have insecurities, you might make fun of yourself. Uh, so that you lead the laughter of the insecurity rather than other folks leading it. So you take back what what can be used to uh, to hurt you. Um, and I think that uh, laughter and 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 jokes and humor um, for a lot of damaged people, we see that it is almost like a life clinging thing 
where they use that to stay alive. They use that to have uh, the one thing, the one constant thing of joy being humor. Um, so they, they bring that back in, uh, with themselves. Uh, so I see how humor is so, it's so vital to the human experience. Eddie, thank you for that. You know, I wish my dear friend, Dr. Carl Hamashalag was here right now, but he passed away two weeks ago. And Dr. Carl Hamashalag was a psychiatrist um, and worked with Native American communities for decades. And he also dressed as a clown and, tra and traveled to war regions and to, um, uh, and to poor villages that, were, that had a lot, just experienced trauma. And he traveled with someone more famous, Patch Adams. Carl Hamishalag and Patch Adams traveled together. I'm sure you've seen Robin Williams' movie about Patch Adams. If not, it's worth checking out. And they specifically, in a way that would be hard for some to understand, but they very much understood what they were doing, wore clown outfits when they would go to these um, trauma-laden communities in order to engage the children and the adults and found that their ability to bring laughter, bring, bring comedy was actually a crucial part of the healing in regards to, uh, in regards to this trauma. So I don't, I don't know if anyone has, has, has insights on that or Eddie's point also, but Eddie, I appreciate you moving us in that direction. Um, I think humor is, could be neutral, is a tool in how you use it. You can use it for negative reasons. You can use it for positive reasons. You can let it bubble up. So I think like anything else, when we're dealing with other people, we need to be sensitive to how we're using it and how it, and how um, reaction like we do any other skill in human relations. Yeah, great, great. And, you know, it's, it's um, you know, uh, we don't always want to just demystify humor, but we can ask ourselves, like, what truths are we trying to convey through our jokes? Like, why do you think, for example, why do you think we tell jokes about two Jews, three opinions, right? Why do you, there's so many jokes about Jew, Jews and argumentation. Why do you think we tell those? Are they true? Are, are we trying to convey a value? If it's, there was a... If there oh, was a sorry. Jew on an island, he built two shuls, the, Jew, the shul he's going to go to and the shul he's not going to go to, right? Right. That we are difficult people. We're difficult. We argue. and I'm building a shul because I'm not going to go there. Like, we find this stuff hilarious, you know, because we're, we're combative. Why do we tell these jokes? Yeah, Lauren. It's observational humor, similar to what Jerry Seinfeld does, right? Like, yeah, and, and I think it's really important to be able to laugh at yourself. If, if you take yourself too seriously, it's not good. But if you laugh at your own foibles, yeah. um, and there's a little bit of truth to a lot of jokes, you know, and we can be argumentative. And yeah, there is the shul that I will go to and the shul I won't go to. And, you know, I can imagine one Jew on an island building two. Um, it's, I think it's healthy. I really do. I also think that it's part of the trauma that Eddie was talking about, because we also, a lot of Jewish humor is gallows humor. And um, because we've been persecuted for so long, you know, in, in, in a similar way, my mom never lost a leg. She made jokes. She used to go to the uh, podiatrist and ask for half price because she only had one foot. She used to talk about having one, one foot in the grave. Like she was hilarious. And, and it was her way of dealing with it and making other people comfortable because, you know, she didn't see it as, as, as a trauma. But 
maybe she did, but it's it's a way of dealing with it. So I think it's it's a healthy way. You know, so part of the argumentation bit is 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 in truth. Like we are a Talmudic people. We are a people of debate and argumentation. That's what makes us Jews, uh, partially. Um, and part of it, I think, also emerges from the American experience, or, or early 20th century. Like we're in American society, but we're a little bit outside, right? We're a little bit like we're a little bit here. We're a little bit there. There's kind of a wishy-washy dimension of our culture, like of being wanting to be assimilated, but wanting to be outside and kind of in this dialectical tension with everything rather than just in one spot. We're kind of a, a, a traveling nomadic people, you know, but to go to Seinfeld, part, part of why I think Seinfeld's success, if I had to point to one of his one, one of, of five reasons, it was his ability to take micro things and being analytical about micro things in a light way was something so stereotypically New York Jew, right? And so I'll give you an example. It's so Talmudic. Like there's this, there's this argument they have in Seinfeld where George, I think it's George, who finds, um, I think it's a donut or a bagel um, that, it, uh, that, somebody correct me if they remember this correctly, but here's how I think it goes. They throw in the garbage some of their food and then he goes back to get it because he wants to have a little bit more. And he says, how could you eat the food out of the garbage? And he says, it's above the rim. It's above the rim. It's still above the rim. So you can still eat it. And so they have this debate about when is it in the garbage? When is it out of the garbage? It, where is the rim start? Where does the rim end? Can you eat out of the garbage? Only if it's not really in the garbage, if it's above the rim. And so like, if you've studied Talmud, it's like debating the minuscule dimensions of how a sukkah is going to be built or how you're going to light the menorah and all the, the pill pool back and forth. It's like Seinfeld, like that's one of the areas where he mastered was like, taking little social phenomena and kind of debating it back and forth. You know, normally you wouldn't think of humor like that prior to Seinfeld, I think in, in, in most realms. And so I, I think that was a very Jewish thing he did. So yes, I, I think someone else was gonna jump in here. What, what is another common genre of Jewish jokes? We talked about, um, we talked about arguing. We mentioned, we mentioned the, money, the money part or the stingy part. What is another genre that you think is a typical type of Jewish jokes. How about the Jewish mother? Why do we tell jokes, jokes about the Jewish mother? Who is the Jewish mother? She is overly controlling. She is obsessive, um, uh, uh, like, like uh, upon her daughter uh, and, and her son. She is, she, what, uh, is, is that true? Like, why do we tell jokes about Jewish mothers? Do you find them funny? Do you find Jewish mom jokes funny? So, so, but you know what? You hear the same thing from Italians and Greeks. Yes, right. You, it's that's a European thing. You talk to people of other cultures and they think they're the only ones who tell those jokes. Like, oh, you tell those jokes too? Oh, I see Pam just joined. I, I was thinking of you, Pam. Pam, is there any, are, are, there, are there Indian mother jokes? My mother better never see this recording. Um, <laughs> but yes, it's very similar. Um, I definitely make plenty of jokes with my friends and, and it, the, it comes across as, you know, that happens in our culture too. So right, right. I, there's, a, there's a hashtag I love to use when I'm posting things online about and put my mother, um, but it's Indian moms be like, and certainly every other um, Indian friend will be like, oh yes, I totally understand that. You know, the need to get married at a certain time or, um, you know, what's going on with your life. The helicopter parent a little, um, I love her and we're very, very close, but you know, like I used to live across country and she would text me at 10 a.m. On, on a work day to say, hey, 
have you uh, like scheduled your doctor appointment? <laughs> I'm like, I'm in the middle of my work day, mother. Um, so I don't know, maybe Jewish moms are a little like that. Right, I guess going alongside that, there's a lot of Jewish jokes about emasculated men, right? Is that, is, is that in Indian culture also that women, women are domineering and so the men are kind of emasculated. Is that is that not? Um, no, actually, as far as I know, Indian culture still has a very um, predominantly patriarchal society. So I was telling this to um, our colleague who was in town from Denver last week. And um, the idea that I was in New Zealand, we have family there, and we had like four events back to back of weddings and people who were tired and needing to go home. And my um, cousin's wife didn't speak up about like, hey, is it time to pack it up and go? And I was like, do you, do you need to go say something? Cause uh, you know, it's lovely that all the men are drinking but you know, it, it's time to move on. And she goes, Pam, that is not how we do things. And so I think every generation is changing but I know that in the Jewish culture, women are very revered and they're, they're the um, predominant one. But I think in Indian cultures until about my, um, my generation, the women are still, um, they're under the men's rule a little bit. Okay, friends, it has been a delight to be with you today. Uh, next week, we are at number 39, hierarchy versus populism, Korach versus Moshe. Uh, you, you ready to move from humor to populist? <laughs> and then number 40, no state, one state or two states. Um, we're going to close on the, the, some of the uh, contemporary Israel, Isra Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, debates that emerge today. And then as a reminder, we will take a two-week break, and then we will move into 40 pearls of wisdom, 40 dimensions of kindness that emerge from Jewish wisdom, which I hope we can study together continue. Have a great rest of your day. Wishing many blessings and lots of laughter. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.